This is my second sermon ever, so I'm going to try to let go of the poet like this much today. I don't think I'm going to pull off the Lynn Enzyme lean, where he kind of goes and I don't know if you've noticed, but that's a, that's a classic Lynn Enzyme move, um, if you're ever watching him. But, um, so for those who don't know me, my name is Bill Rutan. I'm one of the elders here at Orchard. So I'm one of the elders here at Orchard. Um, we're finishing up the August series of uh, essentially... Uh, other preachers and Dave, so he can have a chance to kind of step aside, focus on sermon planning, sermon series for the upcoming year. It also enables us to hear from different people uh, and how they are working through their faith, what God's putting on their hearts. We've had two great uh, sermons from Chris on holiness and glory. We had uh, Mark Philake here last week, a former member. He came back and preached to us on grace. And these are, have been great deep, you know, strong topics, and I feel very blessed to have heard from them. I'm not sure about all of you, but I know they have preached God's word well, and I'm grateful for what they have done and how their faithfulness through this and how God has used them. Today, I'm not going to go as deep, I don't think, as they did. I'm not as smart as Chris and or Mark, um, but I think as we go through today's passage, we're going to see um, some, I'd say, common knowledge we probably have as Christians. These aren't all-encompassing new revelations here. They are things we hear all the time, but as we you know, go back and take a look at Titus in this passage, I think we're going to see some new revelations and God work on our hearts uh, in some new ways. Allow me to pray for this sermon before we jump in. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the work you are doing in this body, uh, that we get to be here, that we have so many men uh, who are faithful to the callings you have put on their lives. I thank you for Chris. I thank you for Mark. I thank you for Dave. Um, the wonderful blessings you've given this congregation through them. We pray for Dave as he continues to uh, work on his planning and his sermon series, that you would bless his efforts uh, and through him bless this church. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to stand here, uh, to gather safely with my brothers and sisters in Christ, to go through your word, that we are free to do this. Lord, I just pray that uh, you might use me uh, in this next half hour or so as we look at your word to speak your truth uh, to this body, that you would use it to encourage us, uh, challenge us, and edify us, uh, and continue to sanctify us. Uh, Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this passage here, uh, and Titus always try to do a little bit of a illustration, but as I was looking at it, um, we always think of things, you know, we always as people look to pair things together. You know, nothing's really good enough on its own. We always got to add something to it to enhance it, right? Just a little bit. Uh, we have, you know, grilled cheese and tomato soup, um, for instance, cider and donuts. Chocolate's not good enough. You got to add peanut butter to it or almonds or something like that. Uh, baseball's not even good enough. We have to add hot dogs, you know, to make that a little bit better. Um, Oreos have to go with milk. They don't have to, but you're kind of a monster if you don't. Um, <laughs> And then you also, with these pairings, you know, something enhances the other. And uh, like Oreos and milk, and with these pairings, you can kind of, you know, things can play and bring things out, you know, one thing can bring something out of the other thing. Um, but with that, there's also disagreements, right? Not all pairings are to everyone's taste. Not everyone likes almonds in their chocolate. Um, my son likes to dip his Oreos in water, you know, to each their own. It's, again, he's, I have a monster for a child. But um, you can... You know, there's these pairings. And I think a lot of times when we interact with Scripture and the teachings of God and the calls of a Christian life, we kind of see them as pairings, right? We see them as, oh, this will go along well with my faith. 
Um, and I want to challenge that notion today as we get into Titus that this is not, what we're talking about is not a pairing, it's not an enhancement, it's not an um, addition to kind of making it a little bit better. But rather this is, as we get into this passage and we see Paul explain to Titus, as we um, will get there, it'll, you'll see that this is more than just a pairing, that this is a necessary connection. You know, we have our pairings, things that make things go better, but then we have things that necessarily have to happen together. You know, you go to a baseball game, you get your hot dog, you sit down, and you're all ready to go, but there's no baseball being played. You're not at a baseball game. You know, you have to have baseball for a baseball game. Um, if you jump out of a window, you're going to fall. There's some necessary connections that things go together. Um, and I think that as we dive into this passage and read through it, we're going to see that um, this is what we're talking about here is not just a pairing, it's not an enhancement, it's not an adorning, but rather it's a necessary connection. These, these issues we're going to discuss are intertwined. They, don't, they can't exist without each other. Um, so today, if you could open up to Titus, uh, it's one of the epistles towards the back of the Bible. Uh, we're going to camp out here, really, in Titus 1, 3 through uh, 11 for the duration. We're going to read it multiple times. I'm going to warn you, you're going to hear the same passage a couple of times as we work through it. I think there's going to be value there. Uh, so, you know, get there, open it up, get cozy. We're not jumping around, um, and we're going to get familiar with this. So I'm going to start off by putting the passage before us one time, our first time. In Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now, it's always tempting, right, to get a passage and just kind of like jump into it and just start peel, piecing it apart. Um, and, you know, we just, we're eager, we're excited. You know, we want to find the meaning. Um, but it's also crucial, I think, to stop and pause and kind of look at the situation on the ground, right? The Bible is full of, you know, all these books of the Bible. It's more like a library. It's not just one topic. It's a, many genres in the Bible. There's historical narratives, prophecies, the Gospels, letters, epistles. You know, there's... Uh, historical books. Uh, there's so much within the Bible that we kind of have to stop and to better understand it, you know, pause before we get in and kind of, you know, assess what's kind of going on. Um, so I kind of want to do that before we jump into here because it gives us some insight and some context that'll be beneficial to us. So this is a letter. Uh, this is a letter from Paul to Titus. Those who don't know who Paul was, Paul was uh, around at, at the time of Jesus, at the time of his crucifixion in the early church. 
Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. He was one of the, uh, he was definitely, he was involved in the persecution of the early church. He did not accept Christ as the Messiah. He thought the people who were following him were heretics and they needed to be punished, punished to the point of stoning. Paul oversaw the stoning of Stephen. Um, and Paul was zealous in his fight to crush this new um, version of Judaism as they saw it that was going off track and was teaching people you know, sinful things that there was this false god. Uh, so Paul was pursuing that uh, to the utmost degree. He was very zealous and very smart and talented Pharisee. What Paul wasn't expecting was when he was on a trip to Damascus to persecute Christians, Christ intervened drastically in his life. There's a wonderful... Uh, account uh, this miraculous moment where Paul's on the road to Damascus, Christ appears to him, challenges him in his persecution of his people, and ultimately saves Paul, redeems him, and brings him into the work of the building of the kingdom. So Paul goes out from Israel. He goes out to all of the Gentile world, all the non-Jewish people. He goes out to bring the gospel with him. I'm summarizing a lot here. And he travels throughout the Roman world, the, Gre- the Greece, Greco-Roman world, all throughout the Mediterranean Sea, essentially planting churches, teaching people, spreading the gospel, doing great things for the work of God. And as you read through the epistles, and you read through Acts, the historical account, and the epistles, and the letters from Paul to all the people that he was working with, you get to see this wonderful picture that I think we kind of take for granted at times, or kind of just treat like stories. You know, we kind of come familiar with Christianity uh, a little too much sometimes. But you see this beautiful picture through these letters of Paul and people like Titus and Timothy and so many others working diligently to try to live out their faith. You know, they're out there spreading the gospel, helping to teach people, helping to draw them to Christ, helping to um, build the church and see people saved and redeemed. Um, And I think seeing that, knowing that in our minds, this isn't just, these aren't just letters, you know, this isn't just a story, this isn't just something. These are real people talking to each other in real situations with real problems. And I think it helps us connect a little more um, with the passage there. And so you'll see in this passage, Titus was in uh, the island of Crete. Um, there's no account of how that church was officially started, but we know that there was issues uh, in, this, in the area of Crete. Um, there were um, bad teachings, and there was issues with the culture there. And I think if you flip to um, back to Titus 1, it gives us a little bit of a picture there. So in Titus 1, verse 10, we kind of see uh, Paul you know, kind of gives us a little insight here, so it helps us to even better understand this. So this is Paul writing to Titus still. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching shameful, for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, Cretans are all are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So we see here Paul kind of describing what's going on. And we see as Paul is, you know, kind of setting the stage, we kind of have some issues going on in Crete. You have the people of Crete growing up in this culture that I think we can probably identify a lot with. That's defined by the following terms, you know, evil beasts, liars, and lazy gluttons. I think we can kind of understand what that's like to grow up in a culture like that. You know, it's a place where there's low morals, there's low worth for other people, there's a lot of self, you know, righteous or self-indulgence, there's a lot of um, mistreatment of each other. And then we also see that 
there's this other group out there, this group of false teachers. You know, we have the early church out there spreading the gospel, and right behind them come all these bad teachers, essentially, coming in for their own gain. You have, they, Paul calls them the circumcision party. They were essentially just trying to heap more things onto the gospel to say, oh, good, you accepted Christ, but now do these things, including circumcision, which is why I called the circumcision party. You can get into that a lot more in Acts and how that was dealt with, but ultimately, I think Paul describes them pretty well here as... Um, Empty talkers, deceivers, people after their own personal gain. So you have these new Christians, you know, these immature Christians in the island of Crete, and they're growing up. Their natural culture is something I think that we can identify a lot with, and they're also being faced with, all right, what does it mean now that I'm a Christian? And here come all these people coming in behind the the prophets or the early evangelists and teaching all this messed up theology, essentially. Um, I don't know about you, but I hear a lot of messed up theology out there, too, today. Um, So here comes Paul, and here comes Titus into this situation. They're not from Crete. They didn't grow up there. Um, They're traveling around. And we see also in Titus, a couple verses before that, up in 5, you see Paul instructing Titus as to why he left him there. Uh, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed. And then he goes on to give qualifications for that. But really... Paul left Titus there to establish healthy churches that are focused on the gospel with quality leaders to help the church grow. So then Paul moves into the letter of Titus, and you see, you can see as you read through Titus, you see this through a lot of the epistles as you read them. You see this interweaving, right, of the writers as they wrote to these churches. You see this interweaving of application and theology in a lot of these letters that Paul writes out. And uh, Peter, I think Mark did a really good job last week of kind of showing how theology and application uh, go together. They, you know, they kind of seamlessly, breathlessly move from one to the other in a natural way. And I think we're a little more, you know, linear, direct in the way we think. We don't, like, point A leads to B to C. And for them, it's more of this, you know, I want to say, it's kind of this, like, this artistic, you know, kind of flowy thing going on, you know, between um, our application, how we live, and our theology. Uh, so... As you read through Titus and you read through these letters, you'll see that a lot. Um, in today's passage that we read, uh, we almost get this little you know, bit of a theology sandwich as I was kind of thinking about it. Uh, Paul goes out and lays out some application, you know, hits some theology, and moves right into some additional application there. So I'm going to read this one another time, a second time, as we go. But I just kind of want you to listen for that. Kind of listen to how Paul, as he's instructing Titus to instruct others, um, kind of just melds these things together. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For as a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And as I said earlier, you know, I kind of see this not as a pairing as Paul's teaching Titus, but there's this necessary connection that flows between our faith and our, how we live our lives. It's not, you know, do this and it makes this better. It's this is what that means. You know, there's this, there's this key connection between our faith and how we live, and they can't be broken. They can't be separated. And looking at this, you know, we'll take a look at the application first because I think that's a little easier for us to deal with. Paul also starts there. But as we work through this application that Paul gives and then also the theology and how they interweave and intertwine, um, we're going to see some things that on face value, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, that's nice. You know, but then when we actually stop to consider what they mean, what it means to actually live a life like this, what he's actually calling us to, you know, it's, it's so countercultural and counterintuitive to how we want to live our lives, right? And that's what God does. He calls us to live lives changed, to be renewed, to be transformed. And that was a topic that Keith talked about in Sunday School today, talking about how God transforms us and how we view you know, finances and things like that. But as we look at these applications, you know, it's like good stuff you would teach kids, right? You know, but what about us? You know, how do we live? Um, and where does it challenge us? So in verses 1 through 2, Again, the application here to people. This is to them. I should have prefaced this. Them is being Christians, people who have been saved by God, who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Also, as Christians, we like to try to push this on other people so much. You know, like, well, you guys need to live this way. Like, Paul's writing to Titus to teach the Christians to live this way. So we need to start there um, before anything else. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy to all people. To be submissive is to willingly put yourself you know, in a situation that you will follow someone, even if they ask you to do things you don't necessarily want to do. Right? It's not submissive to say, I'll follow you until you say something I don't like, and then I'm going to not follow you anymore. You know, that's not submissiveness. Submissiveness is a willing desire to put yourself under the authority of someone else and do what they say. Now, there are warnings in Scripture. Do not be submissive against the will of God. He's the ultimate authority. But it's clear throughout, you know, so much of Scripture that God puts authorities in our lives to direct us and to guide us. And it's not our, it's not our position to go through life judging each authority all the time and saying, I'm going to listen to that, but not that, that, not that, that, not that. Because unless it's going against um, the will of God, God's will is very clear, be submissive to your authorities. And this is a broad authority. This is, he talks about the rulers, then he talks about all authorities. This is not just the authorities of government. This is the authorities within the church. If you're a child, it's the authorities of your parents. If you're at work, it's the authority of your employer. We have so many layers of authority in our lives, and we constantly just want to be like, I'm not listening to that. Oh, you're ridiculous. I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. And this is where Paul's coming in to the uh, notion and culture of Crete, you know, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That is not how a Christian is to live. We are to subject ourselves and be submissive to our authorities. And also stop and consider for a second that he is also talking about political authorities. 
And the political authorities of Crete and the Roman world were way worse than anything we have today. They were pagan. They maybe, you know, or pagan to the point where they just made up gods, do whatever they wanted. So really, I guess they were self-worshipping people. Because if they didn't like what one god did, they'd make up another god to say, you can, this god said I can do that. You know, so or I'm going to go pray to this god now because they, they're doing what I want to do right now. But they were pagan. They were harsh. They were as a harsh, brutal, autocratic government. You didn't have a say. You know, you couldn't go up to, the, you couldn't go out and protest. You couldn't do, um, you couldn't lobby your governor. You know, there was, there was fear to go before the governors because to go before them could mean your death if they didn't like what you brought to them or what you were saying. There was no complaining. Um, so these are the authorities that the people were to follow. This is to be our default position. Our default position is to be submissive obedience. That's where we start. And then we're to say and judge and be thoughtful as to how it, if it goes against the will of Christ. But I'd really challenge us Christians today, especially in our culture now, really think, is this an issue of going against God's will or is just me just not wanting to be submissive? You know. And I think as the years go on and our culture drifts more and more away from a Christian-based culture, we're going to have to make these decisions. And I'd say we're going to become in a situation very much like the early church, most likely, and we're gonna, we, have, we currently have and we'll probably continue to get leaders that are not in line with the will of God, and we are to be submissive to them. Next, be ready. That wasn't hard enough. I mean, Paul just boom, 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 right? Be ready for every good work. Again, this is talking about our broad society, you know, submissive to rulers and authorities, those outside, a lot of times that being outside the church. Be ready for good work. Work around us, works that God presents to us. Think about, again, lazy beasts, or evil beasts, lazy gluttons, right? That's the context that this is. Ah, I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do today. I want to relax on my Saturday. You know, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be ready for good work. When good work is presented before us, we are to follow through. We're to engage. We're to be a benefit to others, not just ourselves. We're to benefit the community. We're to benefit the church. We're to benefit those around us. The church is to be a force for good in the world. We are to be out there, engaged, beneficial, good activities. We are not to be idle. We are not to stand aside. There's this kids movie, most of you probably haven't seen it, it's kind of obscure, but called Robots. It's about robots, surprisingly. But um, there's this saying in there that, you know, one of this lead robots, you know, inventor says all the time, you know, that this is like the tagline through the movie, but he says, see a need, fill a need. You know, it's kind of like the general idea of these robots are supposed to invent things to make life better. But basically, if you see a problem, step in and, Try to fill that problem. Try to fix it. If we see issues in our community, if we see someone struggling, if we see someone hurting, if we see that there's a way that we could help people to be a force for good, we're called to do that. And then more so, and this one particularly challenging right now, verse 2, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy to all people. These are broad terms applied broadly, and we're to do this broadly. This is not to be, we're not supposed to say nice things, be nice to people who get along with us. This is to be applied to all people we encounter throughout our day. This is to the church in Crete, to their you know, counterparts who are evil beasts, liars, gluttons. This is to us, who are counterparts in our culture, are evil beasts, liars, and gluttons. You know, it's like, this is who we're to talk to, and we're supposed to do so in a way that is not speaking evil, not quarreling, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy to all people. And again, this is not to speak truth. 
but there's a way to speak truth and there's a way to speak truth. You know, there's a way to address you know, and talk to people and tell them about their need for a savior. And there's a way to belittle and humiliate and try to push people down. Um, that's our culture right now. I don't know how many people see these things on the internet or whatever, but it's like so-and-so, you know, totally owns this person. Listen to this video where they completely obliterate them or make fun of them or whatever. Those go around the internet. You see that constantly in our media, you know, where it's like people set up these things just to try to put other people down. We don't even have discourse on topics so much anymore, but so much just attacking of character. We have insulting. You're going to see it heavily in these next couple months in the political community, but it's not just during election times. It's all year, and it's constant, and it's this tearing of people down. And Christians, we cannot engage in that. That is not the life of a Christian. It does not matter if the person is Democrat or Republican or Muslim or atheist or homosexual or transgender or a gambler or an adulterer. We are to not speak evil to them. We are to avoid quarreling. We're to be gentle and show perfect courtesy. This is a hard and strong calling in our lives. You know, we like to debate the finer points of theology a lot. People like to go into scripture, but we like to ignore these things. And this is something Dan has taught me a lot. It's like, these things, we like to just walk past. You know, like, I don't want to deal with that. Let's talk about predestination. You know, like, let's start with showing perfect courtesy to all people. And then let's debate the finer points of theology. You know, we have clear instruction. Follow where is clear. Again, speak. This, this can be particular. So that's like broad society, but think about our families. What about that family member who just really gets under your skin, you know? Or you think about your job. What if you work with a lot of people who are, you know, difficult, to say the least? So you're a police officer, a social worker, a teacher, you know? You still need to follow these um, rules. You need to follow this direction. And I think Paul gives some additional clarity to this in Colossians 4. But let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Our words, how we speak, and how we treat people are crucial as a Christian. And then 9 through 11, these are slightly different. I think Paul groups them slightly differently intentionally because Paul's very smart, inspired by the Word of God. These instructions in 9 through 11 are a little more inward focused, I think, towards the Christian church and how we treat each other and our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll read those again. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Churches can get off focus very easily. Bodies of Christ can get off focus very easily. We can start to backbite. We can start to bicker. We can start to tear each other apart. Um, and Paul has very clear and direct warnings for that. It's just don't do it. I mean, it's, it sounds simple. And again, these are broad categories that we must apply broadly. But this is what we're called to as Christians. These things tear churches apart. They tear people apart. They wreck faith. We are to avoid these things. And focus on a couple of words there, though, because he juxtaposes these as we move into some things. But he declares all these things, these negative things, as unprofitable and worthless. Just thinking about how much time gets devoted within the church for unprofitable and worthless discussion. And then beyond that, the people who engage in them, cut them out of your life, Paul says. They're going to suck you in. 
when you hear people that are obsessed with dissension, obsessed with strife, obsessed with tearing people apart, they suck you in and they take you and they take your focus and your energies off of what we're to be doing. So Paul's very clear. If you come into into relationship with these people, you warn them once, you warn them twice, you speak the truth, you're like, hey, you're going on a path of dissension, you're starting to pull people apart, you got to stop doing this stuff, and if they ignore you, you're like, all right, I got to get focused on what God calls me to do. I can't spend my life consumed with your issues and your problems and your strife and your um, anger. You know, we are called as Christians to something better. And in here, you know, we have this application. These are strong. These are direct instructions on how to live. And I, I was thinking of this, you know, I got five kids. So far, the first three have gone through this stage of the why, why, whys. You know, they think they're funny. It's really annoying. And it's like, and why, and why, and why? And they, they must cartoons and stuff, but I'm sure I did it. But like this idea of like the why, why do we have to do this? All right, be nice to people, you know, be nice to those outside the church. Do good works, you know, um, speak well towards people, be peaceable, be loving, you know, all right, why? Why do I got to do that? You know, and even as adults, we don't do the constant why, 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 but in our heads, we're always doing the why, whys. You know, I'm always doing it. I'm sure you guys are too. We're thinking like, all right, you tell me to do this. All right, why do I got to do that? You know, um, we might not be as, we learn how to temper that a little bit as we grow, but we still do it. And Paul, thankfully, um, gives us the why. This is the theological meat of the sandwich here, right? This is the why of how we're to live our lives. Um, I'm going to read this part, uh, verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So why? Why do we have to do these things? Why do we submit to rulers and authorities? Why do we treat others with perfect courtesy, love, and grace? Why do we work for the betterment of others? Why do we speak, seek peace and unity instead of division and dissension? It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work that God has done in our lives. Verse 3, we were lost. We were foolish. We were led astray. We were slaves to our own passions. We were destined for a life of eternal punishment. Then Christ interceded in our lives, verse 4. He appeared in our lives. He changed our hearts. He saved us from our sins. And it's very clear, not from anything we did, but only by his mercy. As Mark preached last week, by the grace of God. He washed us. He regenerated us by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Think about holiness. When Chris talked about holiness, God's called us and set us apart to make us holy, to make us different, to bring us back to him who is holy. Then he didn't just stop there. He didn't just cancel our sins, but he makes us heirs to the hope of eternal life. God has been beyond gracious to us. I don't think grace could ever 
and our understanding give us a full understanding of what God has done. But he has changed us. He has brought us. He has saved us. He has changed everything. And he didn't just save us to not go to hell. He saved us to bring him into his kingdom, to bring him into relationship, bring us into relationship with him. And he didn't just do that for our own benefit. He did it for us to do good works, for us to be engaged in things that are excellent and profitable, as it says. And that's the necessary connection here. Because of the work that God has done, because he has saved us, because he has called us into his kingdom, he has given us something to do, and that's to live excellent, profitable lives. Excellent in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of man. What does it mean to be excellent in the eyes of God? We just talked about it versus the application in the application verses. We are to be profitable. We are to be fruitful. We are to use our, to grow in our faith and to show the fruit of our faith. When we see people sitting around tearing a family member or a friend or someone in the community down in person or online, when we have coworkers in our lives tearing apart our boss, clients, you know, we can't be a part of that stuff. When we have people in our culture, you know, outright cursing our government and specific individuals or even veiled curses, you know, cheeky curses that we see in our culture now, we do not engage in that. Not only do we not engage it, we must denounce it and we must not consume it. We are to live our lives and speak gracious truth to the world around us because it is excellent and profitable. In Matthew 5, uh, 13 through 16, Jesus instructs, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that you may see your good deeds and glorify, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As we live as salt and light in this world, as we live lives that are excellent and profitable, this is not just for our benefit or the benefit of those around us. This is actually kingdom-building work. This is us engaging in the gospel. This is us engaging in Christian ministry. How we live our lives is a testimony to those around us. And if we engage in ways that belittle, demean, hurt, cause strife and division and pain, we are going to be trampled underfoot. We will lose our saltiness, and we, will, we are not living the lives God calls us to do. And this is hard. This is not, it's easy to say these are simple words to understand, but these are hard things to live out. Thankfully, God gave us the Holy Spirit to enable us to convict our hearts and to help us change over the course of our lives. It's also, remember, verse 3 starts with remind them. This is reminding the Christians in um, Crete to live this way. We need these reminders. We need instructed. We need to be challenged, especially as society continues to go on the way it's going. I don't think there was ever a call in the Christian world that life was going to be easy or that society was really going to engage and support us. You know, even I think in the heyday of Christian Christian life in America, it was pretty messed up. You know, there was awfulness here. You know, if you go back and you look at um, racial, you know, strife, you look at uh, slavery, you look at all the crazy theologies that came out, you know, during those times, we were always been pretty messed up. No matter how Christian we said we were, we always had issues in our culture. Today, they're just a little less masked and veiled. They're just in our face. And we're going to have to deal with those in a way that glorifies God, that helps us to be excellent and profitable 
uh, Christians. And again, these things don't just adorn our faith. They are necessary. They are a part of it. And I just kind of want to kind of wrap up, you know, with one last little picture here. I'm going to read the verse again and then end in prayer. Um, but I kind of like just went to a wedding a couple of weeks ago with my niece. My wife did this slideshow beforehand where it kind of went like her growing up and then him growing up and then them in a relationship together. Then ended with, and I like cheesy stuff, so it's not a belittling, but ended with this cheesy line like, not the end, just the beginning or whatever. And really... I, I like cheesy stuff, so I'm really not made fun of it. I like it. We kind of think about our Christian life, and it's been taught, and people think about it like, all right, I've confessed my sins. I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I'm done. I'm just waiting for heaven. But that's not what we're called to. Accepting of Christ as our Savior is not the end of our Christian walk. It's just the beginning of our Christian walk. As a marriage transforms everything you do, as it changes the places you go, the people you talk to, how you interact with each other, interact with the world around you, even so much more so the gospel does in our lives. It, ch- it changes where we go. It changes who we talk to. It changes how we live our lives. So I'm going to read this passage one more time. And I'd encourage you, if you can, don't read along with it. Just kind of sit back a, a second and just kind of let the word of God wash over you. There's a time to just let the word of God wash over you. So listen to this before we pray and close. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the work that you have done in our lives. Lord, that you have called us, you have redeemed us, you have washed us, made us new, you have indwelled us with the Holy Spirit, Lord, through the power of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, just pray for anyone who might be in this building who has not accepted Christ as their Savior, Lord, who has not been renewed, who has not repented and sought restoration with you, Lord. We pray that as they've heard the gospel read today, Lord, that in the work that's happened in other people, Lord, they might repent themselves and come to faith and start to live this Christian life. And Lord, for those of us who have, I pray that these words challenge us, these words change us, as your power of your word does, and that we may be people, Lord, that seek to glorify you in all that we say and do.